Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. I want to challenge you today to wonder. I want to challenge you today to be in awe. I want to challenge you today to stop, be still, and listen. I'm hoping that all the stuff going on in your life right now, that all the distractions happening around you, that all of the things pulling at your affections and your thinking and your passions will just for a few minutes cease and that God will meet you in this moment. He's the God of the present moment. Amen? I know some of you got stuff in your past. And I know some of you right now are preoccupied with your future. But I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you to stop to be in the moment. This moment right now is the only true moment you have. Past is gone. The future hasn't happened yet and you have right now. You have right now, the Holy Spirit has right now in your life. Amen? Amen? Jan Richardson, in a book called Night Vision, says this. She says, the season of Advent or Christmas means there is something on the horizon, the likes of which we've never seen before. What is possible is not to see it, to miss it, to turn just as it brushes past you. And you begin to grasp what it was you missed. Like Moses in the cleft of the rock, watching God's back fade into the distance. So stay, sit, linger, ponder, wait, behold, and wonder. There will be time enough for running. There will be time enough for rushing, for worrying, for pushing. For now, stay and wait. Something is on the horizon. Amen? Have you ever been in a moment in your life when you look back with 20-20 hindsight and you recognize that something passed you, that God did something in your life, and at the moment it was happening, you couldn't see it. And later you step back and you go, wow. God was up to something at that time, and I didn't even notice it. There's a story in the Bible of a man named Jacob. And Jacob is fleeing from his brother who wants to kill him. And he's out in the middle of the desert, and he, he's tired, and he, he grabs a stone, and he lays it down flat on the ground, and he lays his head on it, and he falls asleep. And while he falls asleep, his eyes are opened, and there's this ladder that goes into heaven. And he sees angels going up and down on this ladder. And at the top of the ladder, God awaits. And he wakes from the dream and he says, Surely God is in this place. And I didn't know it. And that's what happens to us during this time of the year. We get caught up in all the stuff and we miss the moment. We miss the wonder. Today we're going to take some time to wonder at Jesus again. 
Today, let us stop, look, and listen. Let us ask God to help us wrap our minds and our heart around this great event. What's that event? God became a human baby in Jesus Christ. Let us worship and wonder with magi priests and the angels of heaven. Let us wonder like so many that have gone before us have. You know, one of the things as I study and I get ready for a message that I notice is the, the voice of generations that speak about this event. It seems that in every generation, a theologian, a pastor, a layperson, somebody comes up with profound thoughts. Well, they don't come up with it. They're inspired by God himself. But they recognize in every generation the need to stop and rediscover the wonder of the incarnation. Now, if you don't know what that word means, incarnation just means the in-fleshing, the in-bodying of God. That God brought humanity up into deity and deity into humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. What I want to look at today are four, maybe it's five, I don't remember, I think it's four, four reasons to wonder. And I want to ask you to join me in wondering, right? Wondering. And the first one is that Jesus was worshipped as God by the Magi. Jesus was worshipped as God by the Magi. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. It says, when they, that is the Magi, saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, notice they were in a house here, they're not in a stable. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. Notice this, they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You notice the progression here? The Magi see the star. The star is a sign. It points to a person. It points to a child. They move to where the child is. And the first response when they see this child is to worship. The first response when they really come to recognize who this baby is, is to worship. And then interestingly enough, after they fall on their face, and I want to ask you, when's the last time you fell on your face in the presence of a holy God? But after they have fallen on their face, what's the next response? The next response is they open up their treasuries and they give their most precious gifts to the Son of God. And that is a progression that we should see even in our own lives, right? When we recognize Him, when we see Him, when we stand in wonder of Him, the first response is to worship Him, to recognize His beauty, His glory, His majesty, His uniqueness, and then to open up our hearts and our lives and pour out our treasuries to Him, our time, our talents, our treasures, to make ourselves available and all that we have available to Him. Because he's worthy of it. Amen. See, the Magi seem to have been astrologers and possibly priests from some form of Eastern paganism, possibly Zoroastrianism. And some people think that they were a leftover remnant from the time of Daniel, when Daniel was in the Medo-Persian Empire. 
regardless of, our, of their identity, it seems that God purposely led them to Jesus so that he could show us how important it was to reach not only Jews and not only the nation of Israel, but non-Jews, pagans, star worshipers, right? Those who look to the heavens. Regardless of their identity, it seems that God purposely led them to Jesus to reach them. To reach them. He loved them that much. They weren't teens. There were likely more than three of them. And they would not have arrived while Jesus was in the manger. Nevertheless, God drew them. He met the seekers where they were. He drew them because he loved them. And it caused me to ask the question, I wonder, why did these pagan priests worship Jesus? Why did they worship Jesus? These men worshiped Jesus when they saw him because they recognized that he was truly divine. They saw probably for the first time ever that the heavens actually heralded the birth of a child king in a very specific way. By the time that they finally saw him for who he was, they'd become believers and were converted. God had drawn them by the star. God loved them so much that he sent his son for them. Even today, God is drawing people from every religion and every philosophy to himself. There is no one beyond his reach. There is no one beyond his reach. There is no one beyond his reach. As is always the case, God was the one who initiated their wonder. And when they saw him in the flesh, all they could do was worship him. So here's the beauty. These men seem to have started as pagans. And by the time they see Jesus, their hearts are converted and changed. And they're worshiping him and giving to him. And they, they serve as a picture to us of how much God loves his people. And his people come from everywhere and from every background. You know, one of the powerful things happening in our time right now in modern times is the mass conversion of Muslims all over the world to Jesus Christ. And in some places where it's hard for a missionary to go or a church to exist, Muslims in mass are turning to Jesus because they're having dreams of him and visions of him. Amen. One story I'd like to share with you today from an article called When Muslims Dream of Jesus by Darren Carlson on the Gospel Coalition website. He says this, there was a family on a boat with other migrants traveling from Turkey to Athens, Greece. On the way, they lost their seven-year-old daughter into the water. She fell over the boat into the water. Everyone in the crowded boat was looking for her but couldn't find her. Suddenly she appeared on the other side of the boat saying over and over, a man who walked on the water took me and brought me to the other side of the boat. The parents dismissed her words as silly. Upon arriving on the island of Lesbos, they met a Christian who made a fire and offered to talk with them. You hear that? Sounds like Jesus waiting on the shore after his resurrection for the disciples. So they, they land in their boat, and guess who's there? One of God's kids. And he's making a fire to warm them by. Lost my spot. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. That day, without knowing what had happened, he asked if they would like to know about a God who walked on water. They started crying. The man had never used that illustration in evangelism, but that morning while in prayer, he felt like he was supposed to talk about the God who walked on water. They asked him, who are you? 
To which he replied, I'm a Christian. They said to him, what do you mean, walk on the water? He opened the Bible and read the story of Jesus walking on the water. They continued to cry, and they said, our daughter fell off the boat, they explained. We thought she was crazy because she was dry on the other side of the boat. We didn't understand it, but she kept saying, it was a man who walked on the water that took me to the other side. See, even today, God loves people so much that he'll appear to a girl and save her and rescue her for her family's sake and then send a person to share Jesus with all of them knowing their hearts will be open to the good news of the gospel. Now, I know right now in this room, there are skeptics. Some of you right now, that the moment I told that story, you had the yeah buts come up in you. You know about the yeah buts, right? Yeah, but, but wait, wait, whoa, what, huh? Today? Yes, today. He still works wonders today. He still works miracles. He still shows himself to people. In case you're a skeptic, I just would encourage you to do something. Go over to YouTube and type in Muslims turning to Jesus through dreams. And notice the number of videos that come up, first-hand accounts of Muslims that have been visited by Jesus in dreams and visions and told by him to follow him. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Sometimes they see him crucified, and then he speaks to them. Amen? Yeah. Why? Because why did he you know, reach these magi, and what, what does that say to us? That tells us that God loves people, and there's nobody beyond his reach. And so before you start to look at certain kinds of people in a way that despises them and devalues them and thinks that because they're a part of a certain religion or from a, part of the, a certain part of the world or a certain color or race or creed or of a lower class or a lower socioeconomic class, whatever it may be that prejudices you against people, know something, God loves them and wants to reach them, and he may be calling you to be his vessel. Amen. Secondly, let's wonder at the reality that Jesus was announced and worshipped by angels. Uh, I know some of us in this room might not even believe in angels. That's okay. That's okay. We'll, we'll get into it. Look at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Amen. Now, you know, again, I challenge you to do this all the time, but use your imagination for a minute. Right? How many of you know how to do that still? That's one of the bummers sometimes about being an adult. You know, I remember as a kid, I was grounded a lot. I'm serious. I was. That was my parents. As I got older, that was their method of disciplining me. 
So I spent, when they grounded me, it was real grounding. And that wasn't a time when, you know, you could go in your room and Xbox it. That wasn't a time when you had your smartphone and you could continue to do what you wanted. That was a time when I had to go in my room and use my imagination. But because I was grounded a lot, I developed a very, very active imagination. I would spend hours doing murder mysteries on my little tape recorder. I would walk the feet going down, you know, and I'd and the man snuck into the room. And the door opened and I'd have a creaky door. Stealth. He snuck up behind the woman. And, and you know, use your imagination, right? I, I would make that stuff up because I had a keen imagination. Then what happens is you become an adult, right? And you're told that you have to be rational and that only scientific method is important. No longer can you just wonder at things. You, it has to be proven. It has to be given to you with empirical evidence. And before you know it, you've lost your sense of imagination and wonder. But can I challenge you right now to use your imagination? You're a shepherd. You're out in a field. You got these sheep around you. You're minding your own business. You're not looking for angels. You're not looking for a Messiah. You're not looking for a Savior. You're Jewish and you probably care about those things. But right now, you're just trying to make sure that these sheep don't wander off. And all of a sudden, an angel appears to you. Now, you know why he said fear not? Because they were terrified. A heavenly being appeared to them. And then right after that, an entire multitude, the sky gets lit up with angels singing. Now, by that time, you'd be having to kind of, you know, check yourself. You know what I mean? But, you know, angels are those sent to serve humans in God's purpose. Did you know that? The Bible says that angels are sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. That's you and me. And they're powerful beings that often link God's work on earth with God's work in heaven. The presence and ministry of angels in the birth of Jesus, show us how special and unique he truly is. Angels announced his birth and then worshipped him as though he was God. I wonder, why did the angels announce and worship Jesus? You ever wondered that? Well, the angels were worshipping their creator. Now, now, think about this. Can you imagine the wonder of these spiritual beings who had worshipped the Son for countless ages as the second person of the Trinity. And now they see him as a human baby. See, they had their own story of a fall. If you know the Bible, you know the history of the Bible. Angels fell. God had made these angelic beings to minister to him and eventually to minister to human beings. And somewhere in their story, they had been led in a rebellion. And a third of them had rebelled and been cast out of the presence of God. And had fallen into a state of such corruption and death and evil that their, their nature went from light to dark and from good to evil. And they became unredeemable. Human beings are redeemable. Angels are not. Because they sinned in the full light of the glory of God, the full knowing of who he was. They sinned and they chose to rebel against him and try to overthrow him, right? So 
we, we have these angels that are here, and they knew their story. They knew the story of the fall of their own, and they knew that they were beyond redemption. And yet at this moment, they see the God that they worship, the second person of the Trinity that they worship, coming down into a human form and becoming a baby that has to be birthed and changed and cared for by human beings. You can only imagine the wonder and the awe that was happening with these angelic beings. When they observed the human fall in, into sin in the Garden of Eden, they must have been heartbroken. I can only imagine, can't can you just see the angels observing the scene in the Garden, and they see the serpent, they see that lying, fallen angel, Lucifer, that they knew personally, and they see him doing his spell, casting his spell on this couple, and you can just imagine, they're up there in the stands almost, and if they could have been heard, by the man and the woman. You can almost imagine like, don't do it! No! No! And then they partake and they watch as all creation falls. As all creation groans. As everything turns into brokenness. As shortly after Cain rises up and slays his brother Abel. And blood gets poured into the earth. And wars and rumors of wars and disease and death and decay start. They observed all that. So now they're standing back and they're, they're thinking, God, who is infinite, without boundary, spills over eternity, actually can't be contained by infinity. This God is limiting himself to a baby. If angels did that, they were all doing that. that wow, dude. My mind is so wrong. <laughs> Amen. Now they get to announce and worship their creator God as he becomes that human baby to rescue the fallen race of humans. What was it like for them to think, oh yeah, finally, the devil's going to get his. Amen. As they watch a baby be born into the world. They know who that baby is. Number three, wonder. Jesus is the holy son of God. Luke 135, and the angel answered. He's talking to Mary here. Mary's like, how am I going to carry a child? How am I going to be pregnant? I've never been with a man. And this is the answer the angel gives her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, holy means set apart as unique for special use. And Son of God is a unique moniker not given to any other figure of the Bible. Now, I will say this. Adam at one point is called a Son of God. And angels in the book of Job, and I think also in the Psalms, are called Sons of God. In several places in the New Testament, those who trust in Jesus are called sons of God. However, Jesus is the only one called the Son of God and the only begotten Son of the Father. See, he is the God of John 1.1. He's the one who created everything. Right? He is a special one. And it begs you to ask the question, I wonder why did the Son of God come for us? I've already answered some of that, but why, why did he come for us? Well, here's the reason. I'm glad you asked. 
Angels and other men and women were inadequate to rescue us from our sin. A sacrifice for sin was required. The scripture makes it clear there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Blood had to be shed. There had to be a sacrifice. And listen to this. Only a God-man could atone for the chasm of sin between God and mankind. Did you hear that? God, who is Holy Trinity, three persons in one essence, had to act on our behalf. The Father had to send the Son, who would be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to lay down his life on our behalf as a redeemer, warrior, substitute, sacrificial lamb of God. No one else was qualified. God himself had to take the fall. There wasn't a human that qualified. Nobody was ever perfect. Nobody was sinless. There's nobody that could step in. Angels couldn't die for our sins. A man had to. And that's why Jesus came and poured his life out. That's why the Son of God came for us, the Redeemer. Jason Low Baxter in Awake My Heart says this, Christmas for millions is just a holiday season. Are we losing the sense of marvel at the Christmas miracle? Why, this is the most stupendous and astonishing wonder which could ever engross the human mind. That the eternal, infinite creator of the universe should enter our human life and assume our human nature by being born as a baby of a human mother? Boom! What? I mean, think about it. This Son of God is the very Word made flesh. Why is that important? Because it, at that time, many of the Greek-speaking world the, the ones in the Roman Empire had heard play about Plato's writings. And Plato said this. Plato said that there was a creative force that brought everything into being. And this creative force was called the Logos. And the Logos is where we get the word word. And this creative force was the reason behind all of the things that we see. And there were things in the I guess you could say the heavenly realm that were called the forms. And the things on earth were created by the Logos after the forms. But to them, the Logos wasn't an actual person or God. The Logos was like this idea. Well, in John 1.1, John, writing to a Greek-speaking audience who had read Plato's writings, writes to him, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things that were made were made through the Logos. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, the one that you pagans, the one that you philosophers, the one that you Greek thinkers and Roman thinkers have been looking for, the power behind everything is the Son of God, none other than Jesus, who is the living Logos, the thought, the mind, the explanation, the narrative, the story of God. That's who you worship. Wow. And that takes me to the last point. Wonder. Jesus will rescue people from their sins. Think about that. Jesus will rescue people from their sins. Matthew 121. Look at this with me. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I shared this with you last week, but the name Jesus, it's uh, it, 
You have the name Joshua. It's the same name. Did you know that? It's the Hebrew word Yeshua. The English version of Yeshua would be Joshua. Or if you're from a background where your name is Jesus, right? That'd be the same name. And do you know what that name means? That name means Jehovah Yahweh is salvation. Jehovah Yahweh saves. So even his name describes his mission. And what he came to do. And the question I have is, I wonder, why did Jesus have to save us from our sins? You know, a lot of people ask this. People ask, why did Jesus have to come? What makes him unique? Why did, you know, skeptics, you know, all religions are the same. Listen to my heart here and listen carefully to what I'm about to say. People today believe many things in America. Even many people who are Christians believe stuff that is nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in what would be considered Biblical Christianity. And one of the things that we believe, one of the things that we've bought into is this idea that we can pretty much choose what we want to choose to get to God. Um, some scholars call it syncretism. We, we syncretize different kinds of religions. We kind of mix them up and we put them in a pot and stir them up. And we say, I like this part of Hinduism. I like this part of New Age, this part of Buddhism, this part of Christianity, this part of Islam. And I mix it all up and I come up with my own custom religion. And in so doing, what we're doing is actually making ourselves out to be our own gods. Because we're saying we know what's best. And I, I like these parts. I don't like this part of Christianity. I don't like the, the suffering sacrifice of a bloody cross. I don't like that part, so I'm going to leave that out. We, so we, we, you know, many times we bought into an idea about God that is distorted and twisted, right? But, but actually, when we understand that Jesus had to come in order to redeem us from the power of sin and death and eternal damnation, when we really recognize why he came, our eyes will be open and we'll recognize there's really only one way and he's a person. The way is not organized religion. The way isn't organized Christianity. The way is Jesus. Amen. Are, you, are you with me? Yeah. You staying with me? Track with me here. Now let's, let's just walk through this. Why did Jesus have to save us from our sins? First of all, sin leads to death. Check it out in your own life. Does anybody here know anybody, other than Jesus, of course, that has been able to beat death? Anybody? Anybody know anybody that's beat death? There's nobody here that's beat death. Nobody's ever beat death. You know, it's got a 100% track record other than Jesus himself, right? Okay, so sin leads to death. Sin leads to physical death. Sin leads to spiritual death. Sin leads to separation in all relationships. Sin separates us from one another. Just check out your marriage. Check out your friendships. Check out your, your siblings, your parents. What is it that separates us? Ultimately, it's our sin, right? It's our selfishness. I want my way and our anger and our hatred. We don't want to admit it. We want to point at the other person. But the reality is our sin separates us from relationships. right? And ultimately sin separates us from God. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what did God do? God established a system. A sacrificial system with his people in the Bible. First God established laws and commandments to show us what sin is. God gave us the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments to show us what sin is. It's our mirror. It shows us that none of us is righteous. None of us is good, right? I love what Ed, Day, or Ed, Ed, Ed Cole said years ago. Edwin Lewis Cole said, We love to judge others by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. You ever notice that? So 
What does God do? He gives us his law. He gives us his commandments. And his law and his commandments serve this purpose. They show us that we're sinners. And then Jesus went even deeper. He went to the heart of the law. He went to the spirit of the law. And what did he say in the spirit of the law? He said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit murder. But I say to you that everyone who hates his brother in his heart has already committed murder. Whoa. Hatred equals murder? And then he said this, and, and you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that every man, and by the way, this applies to women too. The dudes always get the, the bad side here, right? Every man or woman, every man that looks upon a woman, and the Greek tense there is with the intent of having her, possessing her, knowing her sexually, right? Lusting for her. Wanting her. That's what the Greek word means here. So every man who looks upon a woman with the intent that he would have her and possess her for himself so that he might know her intimately, that man has already committed adultery within his heart. So Jesus makes it clear that sin is something that all of us deal with and that the only way we see it is if it's shown to us by the law. And the law comes up as a mirror and it says, look at this. This is what you really are, and this is why you need a Savior. Anybody listening to me? And now that God showed us our sin, what did he do? He showed us the consequences and the penalties for sin. He showed us that the ultimate penalty for sin is death. And then what did he do? He provided a sacrificial system that allowed animals to temporarily take our place by dying in our place for us. All of this was to prepare us for the coming of Jesus. Jesus came and showed us what a life looked like that had never sinned and never violated God's laws and commandments. He showed us the way human beings were designed to live at first before sin came into the world. And what he did for us is kept the law completely. He kept every commandment perfectly, and he did it in a substitutionary way. He did it on our behalf. He perfectly kept the law in our place so we wouldn't have to because we couldn't. Is this making sense? Then Jesus came and replaced the entire sacrificial system by becoming our sacrifice. One time for all time. Wow. He died in our place. He took our penalty for sin. He took our death that we might have life. And he wanted us to know our sins are not little things. They're not small things. It's not a little white lie. It's not just you being a little bit selfish at that moment. Sin has this, like a cancer, this amazing ability to multiply and grow. And he wanted us to see we're responsible for that. It's not their fault. It's not my parents' fault. It's not anybody else's fault. You need a Savior because that is the reality of your state. This is why Jesus had to come. That we might know that our sin. My sin, your sin, sentenced Jesus to death in our place. This is why he had to come and save people from their sin. And what's the ultimate motivation? I love my creation. I love my boys and my girls, my sons and my daughters. I want a family. And I no longer, yeah, the sacrificial system serves its purpose, the law serves its purpose, but now the full, full fulfillment. Of all of it came in a person 
in a baby, in a manger. And that is the wonder. Amen? Isn't that good news? That's why he had to come and die on a cross. That's why he had to become one of us. That's why he substituted for you. Because he loves you and he doesn't want you to depart from him. Amen.